Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we always like to start with a prayer. Usually we do the Angelus, but uh, since today is our first day in Lent, Ash Wednesday, is there anything particular you'd like to do for this? Yeah, I can say a little special prayer, a Lenten prayer that I came across online on a website called Catholic Online. Okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty and everlasting God, you have given the human race Jesus Christ, our Savior, as a model of humility. He fulfilled your will by becoming man and giving his life on the cross. Help us to bear witness to you by following his example of suffering and make us worthy to share in his resurrection. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Amen. And Our Lady of Sorrows, pray pray for for us. us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Now that Lent is underway, Bishop begins a series of shows that feature his reflections upon the Old Testament readings from the Easter Vigil Mass. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our Bishop. Thank you again for taking some time with us, especially as we kick off our Lenten journey now. Yeah, how's your Lent going so far, Kyle? Well, it's uh, can I, I have big dreams and aspirations. <laughs> it's only been a few hours. I haven't, haven't failed yet. Yeah. So what should we be thinking about? What should we be doing or not doing during Lent? I always go back to the three traditional practices, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Mm -hmm. And I think all three are important. Um, And uh, it's really opening our hearts to God's grace. This is a a, uh, liturgical season where God wants to bestow his life upon us, his new life, helping us to convert, to become become closer to him, especially by uprooting those sins and vices that kind of get in the way of our relationship with the Lord. It's different than making like a New Year's resolution. This is a time of penance. Mm -hmm. So it's a recognition like we do today on Ash Wednesday when we receive the ashes, recognizing that we're creatures, that we're sinners, that we need redemption. And Really, it's a time to just open ourselves to God's grace so that we can be converted and follow the Lord more closely. And that's why we have prayer, to be doing some special prayer during the season every day. Mm-hmm. It could be daily mass. It could be scripture meditation. It could be daily rosary to do something in our spiritual life. Another thing, of course, is fasting, that, that self-denial, not only observing the laws of the church, like today, Ash Wednesday, is a day of fast and abstinence. We should only have one full meal today and no meat. Okay, those that's the law of the church. And, of mm-hmm. course, abstinence from meat every Friday of Lent. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me when people are call for a, uh, you know, can they be dispensed from? I thought we have so little right. that sacrifice that we're asked to do and people yeah. are wanting dispensations. <laughs> I'm like, you know, now it could be that there's something important, but my experience is now, you know, it's like yeah. everyone wants to be, you know, it's like comfort and convenience. Sure, it, sure. It, it kind of drives me crazy, but, uh, but no, it's a, a question of taking up our cross, mm-hmm. you know, and hopefully doing more than the minimum. 
sacrificing, whether it be food or maybe it could be television, might be the internet, mm -hmm. whatever, that we kind of, you know, uh, offer these things up to God as, as really, you know, a sacrifice for, uh, for our sins, but also to uh, become more detached from pleasures so that we can be more self-giving, which gets to the third practice of Lent, which is almsgiving, mm -hmm. to think of how we can be more generous with the blessings and abundance that God has bestowed upon us to share with those who are less fortunate, for the poor and needy to make those sacrifices, like CRS Rice Bowl as mm -hmm. an example. So, yeah, I encourage everybody to make a good Lent. Use this time. See it as an opportunity for conversion and for really a renewed Christian life. How difficult should it be? I mean, if you if you put a spectrum between I'm giving up peppermint candies for Lent being a very simple thing to do easy uh, to I'm only going to have three cubes of tofu per day for Lent being this extreme. Like how much is it just the act of giving something up versus it being something that's actually hard for us to do and it's a sacrifice? It should be something that's that's somewhat challenging. I mean, you want to be realistic mm -hmm. uh, as well, but it shouldn't be. It should be something that really is a sacrifice that, you know, um, and it could be a sacrifice of our time, mm -hmm. you know, like like spending time in prayer, giving up something. We So many of us can get consumed with, um, like I mentioned, television or the Internet or something to give some of that time up and use it for better use. Right. Maybe more time with the family or time in prayer mm -hmm. to really sacrifice. And it doesn't have to be that rigid uh, or or such a rigorous thing it, it but it should be something that we're giving of ourselves you know that there's certain asceticism to our lenten observance mm -hmm. when i think of ash wednesday i always think this kind of two different things that you hear one is that you shouldn't be proud about giving things up and you shouldn't be you know, uh, wash your face whenever you fast. We hear every Ash Wednesday during the, the readings. And then we get these ashes on our forehead to show everybody that we're fasting <laughs> for Lent. I think sometimes, especially, you know, workplaces or we got meetings to go to after Ash Wednesday services. Should we wash our, our foreheads so that we're not bragging about this? Uh, or should we leave that on as a testament of that this is something that we're doing and something that's important to us? I think it's good witness. I'd leave it on. I think leave it. And what is it showing? I think it's showing that we recognize we're sinners, mm -hmm. that we are dust and unto dust we shall return. So, yeah, I think that witness is important, especially in our secularized culture. I would say don't wash it off. I don't think it's being boastful. I think wearing the ashes is saying to everybody, yeah, I'm a sinner and I need to do penance. Mm. I like it. All right. Well, one of the ideas that we had for Lent was to anticipate Easter and to look forward to that and to be reflecting on some of those things. And so I think, Bishop, you've agreed to take a look at some of the readings that we go through during Easter as a, as a way of preparing as well. So whenever we come back, we'll take a look at the first vigil mass reading. There's a whole bunch of vigil mass readings to, to look at. Maybe we can talk about that as well. So that'll be coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.
Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. We've been talking about Ash Wednesday being today as the kickoff for Lent and think of different ways that we can give something up, do some type of prayer extra and almsgiving of a way to give back the blessings that we've been given. But also thought it'd be good for us to look forward to some of the Easter readings and the Vigil Mass has a whole bunch of readings. It's is it like seven or eight? Seven. Yep. Why so many? Seven eight? from the Old Testament, then, okay. then the reading from St. Paul, and then the gospel. So nine total readings. Okay. Because it's a vigil. You know, it's a vigil of prayer, the Easter vigil. So we also have a Pentecost vigil where you can do it uh, additional readings. Huh. But for Easter vigil, it's the most important liturgy of the year. We celebrate baptisms of adults. Mm-hmm. We have sacraments of initiation that night. It's really the high point of the whole liturgical year. So I'd like to give a challenge to listeners now on this first day of Lent. Make a commitment this year to attend the Easter vigil. Okay. You know, maybe two or three hours long, but if you have that intention now, mm-hmm. you know, to say, yeah, all this is leading up to the celebration of the death and resurrection of the Lord, the Easter Triduum and the Easter Vigil. So um, so I thought it was interesting that uh, here on Redeemer Radio, you'd like me to do some reflection on the, the seven readings of the uh, Easter Vigil. Just do one at this show today. But, but it's interesting that it always begins the Easter Vigil, Liturgy of the Word, after they have that service of light and the blessing of the Easter fire mm-hmm. and the singing of the Exaltet. We sit down to listen to all of these Old Testament readings, which really kind of high points in salvation history. And the first reading is so powerful. It's the first chapter of the book of Genesis, the story of creation. Mm-hmm. So we're going to begin the Easter Vigil with the creation of the universe, and then it reaches its climax with the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus, and then the liturgy of baptism and confirmation and Holy Eucharist. I mean, it's an amazing liturgy, but it's interesting that we start with this very fundamental doctrine, this fundamental reality of God as our creator. So we really are getting to the very most fundamental questions of human life, of our existence. Where do we come from? What's our origin? And of course, we reflect on the fact that that one God creates the cosmos in a well-ordered manner and in a state of goodness, with man himself created in his image and likeness as the pinnacle of creation. What a reflection for the beginning mm-hmm. of the Easter Vigil. And that it's all ordered to the seventh day the Sabbath of rest and worship. So reading Genesis chapter one at the Easter vigil is also important because it grounds the celebration of baptism at the Easter vigil. Because when you read that Genesis chapter one, verse two, what do we read? It speaks of the spirit in Hebrew, Ruach, the spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters at creation. This is a foreshadowing of the new creation. Hmm. The Spirit of God who descends upon Jesus in the waters of the Jordan River at his baptism. 
It's the same spirit. So the inauguration of the new creation, the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters, and we're going to, at the Easter Vigil, celebrate baptism, new creation fulfilled in the life-giving waters of baptism by which human beings become a new creation in Christ. Also, the creation account at the Easter Vigil is read because the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of a new creation in Christ. And baptism is the entry into that new creation. I love to study, I don't know, I think we've talked about it on this show before, I'm sure we did, the origins of the human species and the origins of the universe. Uh -huh. I'm not a scientist, but I love studying that and reading what I can. And we can read about this in the catechism. There have been several responses to the question of the origins of the universe and the origins of man. And if you look at ancient cultures and ancient religions, there were many myths about the origin of the universe and the origin of human beings. And really, the Genesis narrative kind of goes against these myths. Hmm. Now, we know that the Genesis account isn't historical science, but the truths that are expressed in that reading, in that account, really are, you know, using some of the images of the Babylonian, especially the Babylonian myths that were circulating at the time. They didn't have the scientific knowledge that we have today. But the Genesis account was countering those myths. Hmm. Um, and affirming that, for example, that God is the creator, that that the sun and the moon and the stars, they're not gods. You know, they shouldn't be worshipped. And the fact that everything was good. A lot of the myths talked about how the world came to be because through a violent action between good and evil forces and all this. I mean, it's it's um, all these kinds of myths are really dispelled by the Genesis account. Now, this question about origins, some philosophers have said that everything is God, that the world is God, or that the development of the world is the development of God. That's called pantheism, and that's a heresy. That's an error that the church has always condemned. So the Genesis account clearly shows that there, everything is not God, that God is the creator. Uh -huh. He's separate from his creation in that sense. He transcends his creation. Other philosophers have said the world is a necessary emanation arising from God and returning to God. Well, no, God freely created the universe. There was no, it wasn't a necessary thing. Others have affirmed the existence of two eternal principles, light and darkness, or good and evil, that are locked in permanent conflict with each other. That's dualism or Manichaeism. St. Augustine, before his conversion, was kind of believed in that stuff. Hmm. They would assert, for example, some would assert that the physical world is evil and the product of the fall and matter must be rejected or left behind. That's another heresy. We call it Gnosticism. Genesis teaches us that God created everything good and we created human beings very good, mm -hmm. it says. Others speak about how the world was made by God, but like a watchmaker who then abandons the world to itself after he makes it. That's the deism. That's a philosophy called deism, this kind of impersonal watchmaker God. <laughs> and then there are those who, of course, who reject any transcendent origin for the world, but see the world as merely the interplay of matter that has always existed. And that's materialism. Mm -hmm. um, 
can read about this in, in the catechism itself, the catechism of the Catholic Church, number 285. That's what I've been summarizing here. Genesis 1, the very beginning of the Bible, we have the truth about creation, that the origin of the universe is in God, and the end or final purpose of the universe is God. We have the truth about the order and the goodness of creation and about the dignity of the human person hmm. because the human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. And when we read Genesis 1, it's very clear. God made all things by himself, by his word. Pope Benedict will often speak about God's creative wisdom or I'm sorry, God's creative reason which is the Son, you know, the Logos, the Word, who eventually took flesh. And the world is created by His wisdom. Hmm. So, by the Son and the Holy Spirit, which, which are like the, like the hands of God, you could say. So, God creates by wisdom and by love. And He does it by free will, not by necessity, and not blind fate or chance. He creates out of nothing an ordered and good world. And God transcends this creation, and he's present to it. And God upholds and sustains creation. So all of this, these truths are really um, fundamental. So we're reminded of those truths at the beginning of the Easter Vigil when we hear that magnificent account of creation. Why do we start with that? Because we're starting with the origin, the origin of the universe, the origin of the human person, and it's really getting to the you know, fundamental questions about human existence. Mm -hmm. And that's why the Bible begins with that, yeah. and so does the Easter Vigil. If we're going to look at the history of salvation, well, there is no history, there is no time until there's creation. Because hmm. before that, there was, uh, you know, God created out of nothing. All there was was God, you know, being. And uh, so... And it's, it's problematic if one reads it as a scientific treatise, because it isn't. Um, it's a theological and spiritual text. Um, God said, let there be light. You know, this is very peaceful. There wasn't, creation didn't come about through violence, like the, the myths talked about, like hmm. the, the pagan myths. God created through his word. And that word is the son, his son, the logos. And he gives us the privilege of participating through our own acts of intelligence in, in his intelligent ordering of the world. That's why Adam's told not to dominate the world, but to cultivate and care for it. Hmm. Now, this is not the only story of creation in the Bible, by the way. Uh, we can read several parts, even chapter two of Genesis, by the way, is an earlier account of creation. Uh -huh. Chapter one is from a different tradition in the book of Riz wisdom and other, especially books in the old Testament. We have different uh, reflections on the creation of the universe, but they're all teaching the very same truths. I don't remember if I mentioned uh, at a, an earlier episode, a book that I've been encouraging our Catholic high schools to to use in their theology and science classes by Christopher Baglow. It's called Faith, Science, and Reason. Okay. This book has a lot of good material on the story of creation, uh, the first creation account that we hear at the Easter Vigil, 
which is really a testament to God's wisdom in creating and to his divine goodness of the universe he created. So this is a really good, especially those who have questions about the compatibility of our faith and especially our belief in creation and in science, especially the science of evolution, which of course we believe to be very compatible. Mm -hmm. One of the things you said was for Adam to not dominate the rest of creation. But in the reading, it says, let them have dominion over the fish and sea, have dominion over the fish and sea, the birds of the air. It says actually twice. Right. I, I was interpreting that as dominance, that, that we as, as humans being made in the image of, and likeness of God, we right. are to dominate over it. But I suppose it's, this is different than uh, what you were talking about last week about that we're also called to take care of creation. Right. And really where, where we have that uh, is in Genesis chapter 2, where Adam is told to cultivate and care for the earth. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about having dominion, it's not in the sense of domination. Yeah. So there's a difference. Obviously, the human person is the highest of God's creation. So in, in that sense, he has, because he has reason, he has this power of the intellect, he has freedom, uh, unlike the animals, he can participate in God's creative action, for example, through human work, etc. So in that sense, yes, there is dominion, but it's... It, it, it shouldn't be a dominion that is ordered to destruction. Mm -hmm. It needs to be dominion that leads to cooperation and not destroying God's creatures, but so that the earth will be fruitful mm -hmm. and et cetera. So. I suppose the same way that parents would have dominion over their children or a, right. a priest would have dominion over his parish or you as bishop have dominion over the diocese, that's not to destroy it, right. <laughs> but yeah. you have a responsibility to take care of it. Right, exactly. Yeah. All right, well, great. If you have any questions for Bishop, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260 436 9598 and coming up we have some of your questions including when are sins actually forgiven and if men can be consecrated virgins and more right here on truth and charity with bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by notre dame federal credit union Welcome back to Truth and Charity. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we have gotten many questions. Uh, this one is a multi-parter. This could take the whole time. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> but uh, it says, greetings to you, bishop, and congratulations on your 10th year in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. A few questions have come to mind recently regarding how the Holy Mother Church determines and declares the physical healing of a person in a miracle. Has recent history always connected the official declaration of the physical healing of a person to an individual who is in the process of sainthood? I'll go ahead and stop there, and we'll maybe just tackle yeah. these one at a time. Yeah, you know, I think, um, I mean, when the church studies to see if a physical healing is a miracle, it's usually in the context of a process for beatification and canonization, because mm -hmm. you need a miracle unless it's the case of a martyr, you would need proof of a miracle for a person to be beatified. And then another miracle for a canonization to occur. Now, has the church studied physical healings 
apart from the process of canonization. I, I was trying to think, you know, for example, in studying Marian apparitions, like Lords, the church has done, you know, an right. extensive examination. Right. You know, it has a panel of doctors. Really, it's a very strict process to examine an event and determine was this of supernatural origin. If there's any way of explaining it by natural means, uh, then, yeah, then it won't be ruled as a miracle. Mm-hmm. To be considered miraculous, the disease must be something serious and impossible to cure by human means. And if there was medical treatment happening, that wouldn't that would automatically disqualify it because mm-hmm. if it can be explained, the healing can be explained by medical treatment. No, the healing must be spontaneous. It has to be something that's complete, spontaneous, and permanent. So the local bishop in this case would usually create a board of medical professionals to evaluate it, and bishop would receive the report, be handed on, you know, in the case of beatification or canonization to be handed on to Rome. So I'd say the church kind of looks at first with skepticism upon these reports, which is a healthy skepticism in every type of miracle that's, that it examines. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you mentioned the case of canonization, beatification, uh, but also in the case of Lourdes, that would be to, to validate a, the, the site as being one of reverence. At Lourdes, there are reports of physical healings, uh-huh. but when those reports are made, and there have been thousands, right. if someone makes an official report, then the church will do this thorough examination. And I think there's only been 60-some, because the the process is so difficult mm-hmm. to, to be absolutely sure that there's no natural uh natural explanation for it so that's the other example i can think of trying to think i can't really think of other times where the church would really investigate a purported healing but there probably are other cases okay maybe with the eucharist i I have heard of that yeah where someone maybe you know being blessed uh at benediction is cured of an illness, but, uh, but I guess if my leg was healed, there would be no reason to investigate it if there wasn't some other right reason. Right. Okay. Right. I, the, and these are highly special, specialized medical experts who would be consulted. Uh, and you know, it's not something that, uh, was just looked at in a cursory way. No, it is really examined with the utmost detail. And I think the next part of that question gets into that examination. It says, can a verification validation of a physical healing be declared officially with one empirical test result, or does it require multiple tests and of different types? For example, x-ray, blood tests, biopsy, that what was once there, clinically speaking, has been healed. And the second part of this is also in the process, must more than one facility verify the testing and over time, days, weeks, months, for the healing to be declared by the Holy Mother Church? I mean, yeah, there would be those multiple tests, okay. uh, for sure. Um, you know, there has to be certainty that there, that there's been a healing. And how do you arrive at certainty if you just do an x-ray? You have to look at everything. But the other thing would be, I'm not quite sure, I don't know all the details of, you know, for example, how the Congregation for the Causes of Saints, they have the medical board that looks at it, but definitely they want to be sure that the healing is permanent and complete. So there would be a certain amount of time. How many months or whatever, I don't know, but there needs to be some 
verification that, yeah, this is something that's complete and something that's lasting. Okay. And the last part of this question says, I think of the TV evangelist who declares physical healing when praying over someone and goes on to declare this physical healing is indeed a miracle compared to the process the Holy Mother Church uses to validate a miracle with many experts, and I'm comforted. Yeah, so am I. You know, I mean, you see some of these who go on to declare that this is a physical healing, and then two weeks later, the disease is back. Well, the church is very careful, so that kind of thing doesn't happen when the right. church investigates. All right. Mrs. Myers from Sacred Heart Parish in Warsaw asks, what do you think about women as theologians and women who teach theology in college? I think it's wonderful that women study theology just as men. I don't really see any difference. I know some really excellent female theologians, so I don't think theology is, should in any way be restricted to men. Okay. You know, I think judging the works of the theologians, whether they're male or female, that's the important thing. Mm -hmm. Are they good theologians? I don't think it matters whether they're male or female. Okay. Another listener asked, if a priest anoints a person without first hearing their confession, are venial and mortal sins forgiven through the anointing of the sick? Is there an official church document you could refer me to on this? And likewise, if an unconscious person is anointed and all of the venial and mortal sins are forgiven through the anointing, if they regain consciousness, must that person need to confess mortal sins to a priest? Wow. Okay. <laughs> I think really it gets to what are the effects of the anointing of the sick? Okay. I mean, this is a beautiful sacrament. Obviously, a person who's sick who receives the anointing receives sanctifying grace, which helps the person, strengthens the person in the face of illness. Sometimes an effect can be the restoration of health, of bodily health. That can happen. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's primarily a spiritual result receiving that confidence in God's love, which gives one strength to bear the hardship of their sickness and of any pain that they might be over, uh, undergoing. Also, a spiritual effect of being able to resist the temptation to despair hmm. or temptations of the devil at that time. When we talk about the remission of sins, whether venial or mortal, the normal means is the sacrament of reconciliation, the sacrament of penance. So, for example, when priests are visiting the sick or the dying, usually we will offer the person to hear their confession, which would be done prior to anointing them. Mm -hmm. And then after anointing, to give them the Holy Eucharist. And if they're dying, that's called viaticum. So that's the order. Mm -hmm. It'd be confession, anointing, and Eucharist. That's for one who is dying. Now, it can happen that a person is no longer able to speak uh -huh. or maybe is unconscious. Right. And in that case, would there be forgiveness of sins? Yes, that would be one of the effects of anointing. And it's because the person is not able, if the person's not able to confess, their sins are forgiven through the anointing that takes place. But notice, I think it's really important, this also, there is always a precondition. And that precondition is that the person is sorry for their sins. Mm. So now a person can slip into a coma, but before they do so, 
they have contrition. They have sorrow for their sins. Even if it's imperfect, not perfect contrition, that's enough for the remission of the sins that takes place through the anointing. But if one is able to go to confession, that's what should be done. Um, If you look at the general introduction for the ritual for the anointing of the sick, when it, it talks about this, it says, if necessary, the sacrament also provides the sick person with the forgiveness of sins and the completion of Christian penance, if necessary. Okay. So, again, it would only be necessary if the person can't go to confession. Uh-huh. And so then if they would regain consciousness after having the anointing but not having gone to confession would they be required to confess those sins? I don't know. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I don't know. I mean, the sins have already been forgiven. I think I'd probably go to confession if it was me. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'd want to be on the safe side. (laughs) Sounds good. Patrick Wheeler from St. John the Evangelist Parish in Goshen asked, can men become consecrated virgins? No. Okay. Can you explain what a consecrated virgin is? Yeah, a consecrated virgin is is a woman living in the world. We're not talking about a nun. Okay. Because there's also in the religious vows where a sister makes a perpetual vow of chastity. Uh, When we talk about consecrated virgin, we're used to talk about one living in the world who's not in a religious institute, not in a religious community. Like we have Jessica Hayes, who's a teacher at Bishop Dwinger High School. She, some years ago, was consecrated as a virgin. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful. It's, it's like an espousal to Christ. Mm-hmm. It's really beautiful. If people want to know more about it, I would say to look up the rite of consecration of a virgin. It is really beautiful the words of the prayers etc during the ceremony but it's not a uh, it's not an option for men now obviously men do make vows of of uh, of chastity for example when they become religious brothers or mm-hmm. promises of celibacy before ordination which is also a promise to live a chaste celibacy mm-hmm. and men can be virgins but there's not a state in life in the church for consecrated male virgins is that because of the spousal relationship to jesus and that i I think so i think that's right um i'm not aware that ever in the history of the church was there a right for consecration of male virgins but i think when you read the prayers you'll say wow this wouldn't really fit for a man okay because it is like you said it's filled with this idea of being christ's bride Yeah. yeah and like for myself as a priest or as a bishop i would consider my espousal is to the church. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I've never thought about that before, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah. All right. You can ask your questions by going to redeemerradio.com slash askbishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we have more questions, including where sex abuse settlement money comes from and if it is a sin to abstain from voting. Coming up here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit, member-owned cooperative. 
Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop and one of our listeners submitted the following question. Where is settlement money for the Catholic sex abuse scandals coming from? How does it impact the U.S. diocese? I want to financially give to my parish and Catholic charities, but I'm conflicted knowing that the Catholic Church in the U.S. is facing huge settlement costs. And I wonder how it's being funded and if that is where my contributions are going. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I can just say um, in our diocese, when there's a financial settlement in a clergy sex abuse case, we use money that's in our property and liability insurance fund. It's a pooled insurance fund. You know, um, that's where it comes from in in our diocese. The um, as far as other dioceses, I would imagine it's something similar. They probably have property and liability insurance. Now, dioceses that have gone bankrupt because of lawsuits, etc. The courts determine where the money comes from, I think. And, you know, we read about mm. dioceses where they've had to sell property mm -hmm. in order to pay settlement money. But I'm really not an expert on it. I just know, you know, that when we've had settlements with abuse victims in our diocese, it's from our property and liability pooled insurance fund. Okay. Our next question came from the Holy Cross College text line. If you have a moral obligation to vote, is it a grave sin not to vote? You know, I don't know if I would classify it as grave. I think it's an important duty um, to vote, a uh, moral duty, but I wouldn't classify it as, as a grave sin not okay. to. Would it depend on your reasons for not voting? Yeah, probably. I mean, that's the whole thing. Like, what's the reason? I mean, it could be that someone, you know, it's been, they're sick and they can't get to the polling station, or it might be that they they really don't know the candidates well enough to make a decision, uh, or that they they don't like e an either candidate. Mm -hmm. You know, I still think they should make the effort to vote for, to still make the effort, but I can't judge their reasons, you know. So, yeah, I wouldn't classify it as grave. Okay. Because it has to be, it's, you know, when you look at mortal sin, you have to have grave matter. I don't think this would be grave matter. Okay. Our next question. Are there any days that the office for the dead cannot be prayed? You know, that's a good question. Um, for other listeners, you know, we have the Liturgy of the Hours, and we have morning prayer, evening prayer, office of readings, night prayer, and daytime prayer. They have what's called the Office for the Dead, huh. which is kind of a special uh, part of Liturgy Hours where there's where all the parts, morning prayer, daytime prayer, evening prayer, and Office of Readings, that it's kind of special apart from the regular. So you can substitute that. Let's say someone has died in the parish or maybe a member of one's family or a friend. I might choose to do the Office for the Dead that day. And as far as I know, and you can read in the instruction, the general instruction of a liturgy of the hours, you're allowed to substitute, but there are certain days that you really shouldn't. For example, it says in the instruction that if it's a Sunday, 
or a solemnity, you know, the highest feasts or feasts of the Lord in the general calendar, days within the octaves of Christmas and Easter, hmm. and that period between the 17th and 24th of December, right before Christmas, that really we should be doing, the, the we really shouldn't be substituting the office on those days. Okay. So... I haven't seen them specifically referring to the office for the dead in those situations, but I think it would be included that we shouldn't substitute on those like major feasts and uh, the octaves of Easter and Christmas or the, or or Sundays. Okay. Another listener asked: Is there a term for someone who regularly goes to Catholic church? with a spouse, et cetera, but has not gone through an RCIA program and received all the sacraments of initiation. Protestant churches immediately have people identify themselves as Baptist or Lutheran whenever they change churches, but many people have said they don't feel welcome immediately in the Catholic church. Do you think that this requirement for training an RCIA to come into full communion with the Catholic church, which is a different approach from many Protestant churches, may be some of the cause of these feelings? Or am I completely wrong and they could identify themselves as Catholic without receiving the sacraments of initiation? Children who have not received all of the sacraments still identify themselves as Catholic. One can only be identified as Catholic if one has been baptized Catholic or has come into full communion in the Catholic Church. Okay. So those are the only ones that can be identified as Catholic. Just attending the Catholic Church, but if one was baptized Lutheran, for example, mm -hmm. and one hasn't come into full communion in the Catholic Church, even though they go to Catholic Church, should not call themselves a Catholic. Now, if they are in the process of becoming Catholic, through the RCIA, that means someone who's unbaptized, they're called a, a catechumen. Mm -hmm. If someone is already baptized validly in another Christian church or a Christian community, and they're preparing to become Catholic and to receive the other sacraments of initiation, namely confirmation and First Holy Communion, they're called candidates, candidates for full communion. Mm -hmm. So I hope that answers the question. Um, people shouldn't immediately identify themselves as Catholic when they're only in the process of becoming Catholic. They Then they identify themselves and they can say, I'm a catechumen or I'm a candidate mm -hmm. for full communion, for reception into full communion. Now, RCIA is usually designed for those who are unbaptized. But some parishes also include those who are preparing for entrance into full communion in the church will go to the same classes. There are some places where they're separate classes. Okay. Yeah. I suppose if I were to attend a, say, a Methodist church with a friend, I wouldn't want them to start calling me a Methodist just because I was attending. But if I was planning on joining that church, I, if people are planning on joining the Catholic church, then it'd be great for them to go through the process and and be called a candidate right. for right and i like to encourage people you know sometimes i've come across people who are not catholic i was back to just the other day i had mass in one of our parishes and afterwards there was a reception and i and i met someone who had been going to that church for like 10 years but still wasn't catholic mm -hmm. and sometimes i think and we don't want to pressure anyone right uh, that would not be right 
but it's a good idea to kind of invite people. Hey, mm-hmm. have you ever thought about, yeah. you know, you can, so that you're able to receive Holy Communion, you know, we have classes that, or whatever to, to, to invite people to consider being baptized or coming into full communion of the Catholic Church. Now, some people may still struggle with mm-hmm. a doctrine or two that they don't really feel comfortable, but maybe it's an opportunity to discuss that doctrine with right. them. It could be various things that hold people back. And I suppose the plus side is that they do feel welcome to come, even though they're not Catholic, and they're coming every Sunday, and they feel welcome enough to attend, which is a good thing. <laughs> it is. That's and really good. Hopefully that they also so, feel welcome to join at some point too. Yeah. And sometimes it's spouses, you know, right. You know, a non-Catholic spouse who's yeah. there with his wife or she's there with her husband and the children. And so they, they pray together. They like that, but there may be something that for some reason they they don't feel comfortable yet. Could be that they don't have the fullness of the faith yet. Uh, they have to follow their conscience. You know, um, we wouldn't want someone to become Catholic who didn't really believe. Right. Uh, it should be one makes a profession of faith, mm-hmm. so one needs to believe what the Holy Catholic Church teaches. All right. Well, a good reminder for us as we enter into Lent to pray for all of those that will be entering the church and all those that are discerning and and thinking about becoming Catholic as well. So, good reminder for us. And as we enter into this Lent, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. Have a good Lent, Kyle. You too. Thanks. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.